Hello and welcome to the Cell Wild Science Podcast. I'm Moni Böhm, Research Fellow here at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology. And today we're heading back to sea to investigate how new technologies can help to mitigate the impact of climate change on our coral reefs. Now, climate change is a massive topic at the moment. We've all heard about Extinction Rebellion, Fridays for Future school strikes and, of course, Greta. And there is a huge imperative to cut carbon emissions to give our ecosystems the best chance possible to cope with the stresses of a changing climate. And also, of course, to ensure the survival of coral reef ecosystems. Climate change as an issue to address feels very overwhelming. It's so big, but we can't just sit and wait to see if we meet emissions targets. So today we will bring some stories of hope because there's a lot of research underway to help corals to survive in inhospitable temperatures. We'll explore some of these new technologies and approaches and how they can help corals to persist in our warming seas. And because I feel I am no brainier than a brain coral, I brought in some help. Catherine Head is a postdoctoral researcher here at the CEDESL and is working on all things coral reef, especially focusing at the moment on reefs in the Chagos archipelago. Catherine, why corals? I mean, apart from that, they come with really stunning field sites. Yes, that's right. They often do, Moni. Um, it's a good question. I, I think I fell in love with coral reefs about 20 years ago when I first learned to, to scoop dive. At the age of five. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> They just absolutely stunned me. It's just another world down there, um, which, to be quite honest, even as a zoologist, I didn't really quite know the extent of it until, you know, I got in the water and, and saw them. And after that, that was it, really. I just fell in love with them. So ever since then, I've been working in coral reef conservation and ecology, trying to aid coral reef conservation and uh, more recently turning my attention to, to researching how we can help corals survive climate change impacts. Once you work on coral conservation it's not always a joyful topic because I suppose yeah. the status of corals has been in steep decline due to the impacts of climate change as you said. Can you set the scene for us? What's happening and how are corals affected by these warming sea temperatures? Yeah, so coral reefs are affected by a whole range of, of threats. So they are affected by direct human threats as well. So things like overfishing and pollution, um, but also by a whole range of climate change induced threats. So those are things like increases in sea surface temperature, ocean acidification and increases in storm frequency. So for instance, increases in sea surface temperature what this leads to is a phenomena called coral bleaching, which you've probably heard about. That's when the corals take on this white bleached appearance because they've expelled their zooanthanelli, which is the single-celled algae which live within the coral tissue itself. And they have a symbiotic relationship. The, the coral gets energy from the zooanthanelli and the zooanthanelli gets a safe environment in which to survive. So when the temperatures raise too high and even when any kind of environmental condition changes, that relationship effectively breaks down. And that is really detrimental for the coral in the long term. So they can recover from it. The corals can reabsorb zooanthanelli from the water column. But it really depends how long the temperatures stay high and how high they go. And for instance, what we've seen recently in, in the Chagos Archipelago, where I work, is coral bleaching in 2015 and, and 2016, which caused up to 70% coral mortality across the archipelago. So it can have really severe consequences. So the zoo and 
I can't say that word. <laughs> this is the first time I've heard somebody say it so easily. And I do remember that when I did my zoology degree, I always fell over it. Sue. Sue Anthony. Sue Anthony. Or you Anth- can call them Symbidinium if you prefer. Symbidinium. So the Symbidiniums <laughs> from Chagos, a lot of them have left the corals. So temporarily, when the temperatures became high in 2015 and 2016, they were expelled from the corals. So they also live in the surrounding water column. So the corals can reabsorb them. And there were some corals, obviously, that did survive, which will still have this symbiotic relationship. But yes, the ones that bleach, they lost their sim, um, their symbidinium. <laughs> <laughs> and that caused the mortality of the corals eventually. So Catherine, this precarious situation for corals and their sim... Symbidinium? Symbidinium. Mm-hmm. It, sounds, it sounds very overwhelming and depressing. But of course, while we generally only hear the doom and gloom about reefs dying in the news on our TVs and so on, scientists like you, for example, have been hard at work because that's the kind of people we are <laughs> to find solutions, at least to help corals survive in the face of climate change. So why don't we just go and meet some of them? Yes, I agree. So first of all, as with many conservation programs, say in the terrestrial world as well, captive breeding is a technique widely used to help wild populations. So why not also in corals? So our first guest is Jamie Craggs from the Horniman Museum and Gardens and the Natural History Museum here in London. Now, Jamie is a professional aquarist with over 20 years experience, including extensive work on coral spawning in aquaria. And, and I really like this, in 2018, he was voted Aquarist of the Year by the Marine Aquarium Societies of North America. That's awesome. I will never be voted Aquarist of the Year. So, Jamie, how do corals reproduce, first of all? So, corals have two reproductive modes. About 15% of them are what are called brooders. So, they fertilise internally. And then a whole bunch of cells are dividing and then they release this planular larvae out into the water. So, that's the brooding corals. The biggest group of corals are what are called the broadcast spawning corals, and they release their eggs and sperms, their gametes, out into the water, often during these sort of mass spawning events, and fertilization is occurring up in the ocean's uh, surface, and all these cells are then dividing. Four days later, the larvae then settles and grows into a new baby coral. That is so cool. Also, I kind of just assumed that brooding corals just sit there pensively (laughs) thinking about stuff, and then I thought, broadcast spawning... Happens after the watershed, right? Maybe. <laughs> Ideally. <laughs> Probably, um, yeah. <laughs> good. So am I right in thinking that you are trying to achieve broadcast spawning under aquarium conditions? Absolutely, yeah. So brooding corals have spawned in aquariums many, many years. They generally go all, all year round, but with peaks and troughs around the lunar cycle. But the broadcast spawning corals are much, much harder to stimulate them to reproduce in aquariums. It has happened in a few aquariums, but it's always been accidental. So the purpose of my work and my teams at the Horniman has been to understand what triggers them to spawn in the wild, put all of those environmental parameters in place and make it happen in a very planned and predictable way. So you're there, you can watch them spawning, you can collect the eggs and sperm and and then run lots and lots of experiments on the back of that. You make it sound very easy, but I don't think it's quite that simple, is it? <laughs> it um, the, the concept of it is really simple. It's no different, really, than trying to breed a tetra from the Amazon. The process is exactly the same. It's about looking at what happens in the wild, mm. what triggers that individual species to reproduce, and then just replicate it. Mm. 
Uh, it just so happens that corals are a little bit more complicated. There's quite a lot of technical aspects that have to go into it. Lots and lots of monitoring. But we've got it pretty well nailed down that we can set almost to the day and certainly to the minute of that day when things will start happening, really. That's so cool. So what triggers corals to broadcast spawn? So we've been working on four parameters. I think we probably can shave some of those off. Seasonal temperature change is definitely a big factor. So as we go from winter into spring, that triggers the coral to start producing its eggs, eggs and sperm. And then as you get closer to the month and then the day and night of spawning, a whole series of factors like the seasonal or the photo periods, the length of the day, the lunar cycle, but also the solar radiation. So the elliptical movement of the Earth around the sun creates different amounts of light through the through the year. And so the thought is that it works at a progressively finer scale right up to the point of them releasing. So you're essentially reproducing the environment for them, like the whole system with moon and solar and everything. Everything. So we, we use data from lots of different sources, NASA satellite data that's open source, probes that have been put onto the reef again. There's lots and lots of data out there that we can use. And then we program a microprocessor that runs the aquarium. So it will turn the chillers or the heaters on and off. Uh, we use LED lighting. We can simulate you know, the arc of the sun in the sky throughout the day and you know the waxing and the waning of the moon. Absolutely everything in southeast London. Of <laughs> <laughs> all places. I know, I know. That's, uh, I mean, sometimes we do need a little bit more sunshine, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. But that, that sounds absolutely fascinating. So how can these techniques that you've developed, how can they help global reef restoration techniques? So we've been working with lots of partnerships now around the world that are using our techniques to then uh, reproduce corals. So Florida Aquarium is one of our key partnerships. They've built a, a facility specifically dedicated to restoring many species in the Florida reef tract, corals being one of those. So they're using our methods that we've developed to spawn their local corals and then start planting the seed that's produced back onto the Florida reef tract to try and rebuild big areas of the reef there. You know, we're opening up more and more conversations with different partners around the world that are you know, looking at applying those principles. So we can work on techniques in London we can get more understanding of coral reproduction at a fundamental level. And then really it's through partnerships that you know, the real world impact of, of those techniques can be hopefully felt. For how many species have you so far achieved this? So we've spawned 24 species now of broadcast spawning corals, which is fantastic. And uh, you know we, what we know is that the technique works over in Florida with Caribbean species. So we don't see there's any real limitation to the type of coral, the location. It's really understanding the data, the behavior of that species, and applying it to however way you want to, to use it, really. I was going to say the world's your oyster, but I suppose the world's your coral, coral. now. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, nice pun. <laughs> well, it didn't quite work, did it? So this is quite an open question, but what do you think the future holds for coral reefs? Mm, deep, deep <laughs> sigh, deep in, take a breath. Yeah, there's no two ways about it. The reefs are in a pretty rough state. We're seeing you know, the fallout of climate change having greater and greater impact. However, there are plenty of studies to show that migration is happening north and south of the boundaries. So they're now inhabiting new areas that you know, traditionally were algal dominated. So I think there are pockets of hope when you look at you know, the broader areas of research. Certainly there's some uh, evidence about acclimation to these warmer temperatures that corals are naturally showing. So I think we need, you know, through restoration methods, you know, 
the idea behind it is, you know, if you could sort climate change out, we wouldn't need any of these methods or tools. But restoration provides a method whereby you could potentially buy time. You can migrate spat or, or corals to what are potentially marginal habitats at the moment. 25 years, they may be optimal. So these are all the sort of things that are being discussed in the restoration community, really. And I suppose Aquaria have the role to play of then, like you guys, captively breeding individuals for release again. We've been talking a lot about this globally within the public aquarium community about what role can we play to act in biobanking of material, are there opportunities and using our skill sets around husbandry, being able to look after corals, what role can we play to species conservation and, and coral conservation? And I believe there's potentially a very significant role that we can play within that. Like I said, there's lots of conversations going on and we're, we're hoping to develop that more over the next couple of years. And spawn some more corals. Definitely. Always spawning corals. Always spawning <laughs> corals. Cool. Excellent. Why the fascination for corals? What's so great about corals, apart from that they broadcast spawners or brooding corals? <laughs> corals have fascinated me for, for 20 years, really. They are fundamentally a really basic animal, but yet they are so complex. You know, there is so much to learn about them. That's what I find fascinating. From an acros point of view, you know, everything we try to do from our husbandry point of view, if we can get an animal to breed, that's really where every acros is trying to aim, uh, you know, to look after their specimens, their animals as well as they possibly can. And if, if they do do that, then those animals reproduce. So that's really the upper goal. And that's really the fascination around the coral reproduction and spawning. It's sort of the toughest thing to do, but it's equally the potentially the most rewarding as well. Okay, so we've just learned that maybe in future we can use aquarium-bred corals to support reef restoration because we, that's a royal we, I know nothing, um, have figured out how to induce broadcast spawning in captive corals. But of course, the adverse conditions of warming seas still happen out there. So how can we help corals survive in the wild over the longer term? So one of the things that our next guest will be talking a bit more about is this use of what we call assisted gene flow and selective breeding. So effectively, we've been doing it for years with domestic cattle, for instance, where you pick animals with particular characteristics that you'd like to see continue through the gene pool. And so there's a lot of work being done into this area at the moment. So I also heard that our next guest is guest by name and guest by nature, right, Catherine? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so Dr. James Guest from Newcastle University is a coral reef ecologist who's currently leading a five-year, €2 million Euro European Research Council Consolidator Grant to work on a project called Coral Assist. And I'll let him tell us a bit more about the project. Thank you very much. So Coral Assist is a project which aims to look at the feasibility, I suppose, of trying to assist corals to survive in the face of climate change. And the way that we're doing that is trying to look for individual corals on one reef within one population and trying to identify the ones that are a little bit tougher than their neighbours, the ones that uh, are able to withstand the heat a little bit more. We know that variation exists. We see it all the time naturally on the reefs. But what we want to do is see if we can identify these individuals and then bring them in to the lab when they are ready to spawn and allow them to spawn together, decide who mates with who and attempt to mate tough corals with tough corals. And then we want to see if 
the characteristics that we saw in the parents, do they get passed on to the offspring? So we don't know that yet. We make the assumption if you've got a heat-tolerant parent, then the babies, the offspring, will be tolerant. But we don't actually know that, so we want to be able to test that. And then we need to, if we're going to get this to work as a method for conservation, then we want to put some of these things out on the reef and want to see if the characteristics that they've got from their parents, do they still show those characteristics once they're out on the reef? And can we put them out in really large numbers? And can we do that in a way that's cost effective? And then finally, is to sort of see whether there are any sort of negative effects. So for example, a coral that is quite heat tolerant might grow more slowly, or it might have some negative effects that we don't know about. So we need to test for that. Because if we put lots of corals out there that are heat tolerant, but they're growing really slowly, then in the years where there's no heat stress, they're not going to do as well. So there's a lot of things that we still need to try and understand if we'd like to use these methods for conservation. And it's really critical that we do the research now before people try doing these, because we don't want to do something and pump lots of money into something which is not going to work. So I don't really know much about genetics at all. Mm. I'm always fascinated by that topic. How much do we know about coral genetics? Or is there still tons of things that you guys will learn through your project? Well, I have to admit, I don't know much about coral genetics. I'm not a geneticist. I'm a reef ecologist. And when I approached this project, I was very nervous about that because clearly there is you know, genetics underlying all these things. But I thought to myself, well... As Catherine said, you know, there's people who breed horses and all sorts of organisms for particular traits, and they don't have to know anything about the genes That's underlying true, yeah. their trait of you know, fast-running horse and so on. So you could do this, all of this work, without necessarily knowing about the genes. And in fact, what we do is we test for what's called the phenotype. So the phenotype is the thing that is expressed, whether it's eye color or hair color or heat tolerance or whatever. And that's what we're interested in looking at. But of course, in addition to that, it's really interesting to know about underlying causes, genetic causes and physiological causes and other things. In our project, specifically, what we're looking at is an arm of omics, I suppose, called proteomics, which is actually looking at what proteins they produce. So that's kind of the end product of gene expression. So genes are expressed and then there's RNA and so on. And then the end product of that are proteins. And those proteins are the things that go on to create the, the phenotype. So that's what we're looking at. And we work with a protein chemist who never worked on corals before specifically to do that. Yeah, of course, there's a huge amount we're still learning about that. Yeah, it's really nice that it's so interdisciplinary and, you know, you use the different people with different skill sets to, to make this work. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's probably the only way we're going to solve some problems is working with people from very different backgrounds and disciplines and, and going beyond just biologists and ecologists, but working with people in conservation and social science or engineers or people mm. who, who have very, very different backgrounds and can bring skills to solving these problems. So, James, do you have any initial results that you could share with us? Yeah. So most of it is fairly positive so far, which is good or at least encouraging. I mean, I'm always a bit, as a you know, scientists tend to be, you know, very cautious about everything and yeah. I'm guilty of that um, but but yeah so far so the, the first thing that we needed to kind of establish was would we find variation in our population so if we're working on this one reef and this one particular species and we might have found that if we when we tested them for heat tolerance we might have not found very, very much variation at all and so that was the first thing we needed to know and what what we found is there's a huge amount of variation so we take tiny pieces off each coral little branches and we bring those into the to the lab and then we put them through heat stress trials and we look to see how much variation there is within our population and we found there's a big difference so there's some corals that even at very high stress all of the what we call nubbins these little coral branches that we bring in they all survive whereas there's others that die very very quickly mm -hmm. so that variation is there and that's really encouraging that we found that 
And then the second thing was, could we breed them? Because we can't really control when they spawn. They tend to, corals tend to spawn at very fixed times, often once a year or a couple of times a year. But there's nothing, you can't induce them. You can't make them do it. You just have to bring them in at the right time and hope that they do it. And we did that and we've been really fortunate that they have reproduced at the same time. And the crosses that we've done have been successful. And then the next stage is, well, are we seeing any evidence of heat tolerance in the offspring? And so far, we're only sort of two years into the project. So we've been able to test the larvae, which are little swimming coral larvae that are produced after a few days. And we found some evidence that the offspring from the higher tolerant parents tend to be a bit more tolerant when we heat stress them. And then we've done the same thing for corals that are about a year old from the same crosses. And we've done the same thing. We put them through a sort of a seven day heat stress. And again, the the offspring that came from the more tolerant parents tended to be a bit more tolerant to heat stress. It's not an enormous difference, but the important thing was to try and understand if this heat tolerance is heritable. And if you start to see differences in your groups, um, even if they're relatively small differences, then that proves that there's heritability there. What you want to try and find out then is how much of what you're seeing is heritable and how much of it is to do with the environment. And as we know, I mean, we always talk about nature and nurture, and we know that a lot of traits, a lot of things that organisms have are a combination of the environment and of genes. And we want to know to what extent is it to do with the the genetics of the parents. And, And that's sort of the next stage. So hopefully when we go back out to do experiments, we'll do some tests on our two year old offspring uh, that have been sitting in a nice nursery. And that should give us an idea of how similar they are to the parents that we got them from. What do you think the future holds for corals? Uh, well, it depends whether you catch me on an optimistic or a pessimistic day. <laughs> what, what's the day today? Um, it is well, a Tuesday. It is a Tuesday. It's you raining know, outside. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm usually an optimist. I, you know, I've tended to be... Because I've, I've worked in places where corals live under really degraded, horrible conditions. I worked in Singapore for a long time, which is like one of the most human disturbed marine environments I've ever been to in my life. And there are really diverse, really beautiful, interesting, quite resilient corals living there that nobody, a lot of people don't even know about, but they're there and they live there with all this sort of muck and ships going over them and and so on, but they're really resilient. So that sort of makes me think, oh, you know, corals are really pretty tough. You know, on the other hand, in the last couple of years, well, in in 2016, 2017, uh, Australia's Great Barrier Reef, which is this fantastically well-managed reef, lost something like close to half of its corals in two years. So that makes you deeply concerned. And then what's happening elsewhere related to climate change in Australia with forest fires, sort of almost apocalyptic pictures that we're seeing. You know, that really hits you that this is really full on and and climate change is is not just affecting reefs, it's affecting everything. And experts are saying that, uh, you know, it's not a case of trying to reverse climate change anymore. It's trying to stop it getting much worse than it could be. And that that makes me deeply worried. So I think for corals, you know, I don't believe that corals will all die. I don't believe that reefs will all die because there are some incredibly tough, resilient corals that are able to adapt, but they will change very dramatically and we'll lose huge amounts of what we have. For human society, it's coming to terms with that and figuring out what, for people who gain really important benefits like fisheries and tourism and, and, and coastal protection and so on from reefs, how are they going to adapt and change and how are we going to still get the kind of value from reefs that we've that we have been. So was that your optimistic or your pessimistic? Well, there's a bit of a in-between, I think. In-between. <laughs> <laughs> to quickly cheer us up again, what fascinates you so much about corals? Why corals? What's your favourite coral fun fact? 
For me, if I talk to students who don't know anything about corals, the first thing I say is that they're just these really simple, basic organisms that are made of two cell layers stuck together with jelly. But they build these massive geological structures that can be seen from space that protect shorelines from waves and build whole nations. Countries like the Maldives are essentially built on top of, you know, coral islands. So that's a pretty incredible thing for a little jelly-like animal to do, I think. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) So connectivity is a big part of coral conservation, and we've already heard a bit about it from your work, Catherine. Our next guest can tell us even more. Rosa van der Veen is a lecturer at the University of Essex, where she teaches evolution and coral reef biology. And she's been investigating genetic connectivity of corals between reefs in the Indian Ocean. Rosa, how connected are coral reefs or not? Well, that's a really good question, because that's why I'm interested in it. Because we, we don't really know sometimes. Some corals are really well connected and some really aren't. So we have to really look into different kinds of corals and also other species to determine how coral reefs are connected. So it's not just down to where the reef is, but also what species we're looking at. Yeah, so actually there are a few things we should consider. So basically corals, how they reproduce. So some corals, they just release hundreds of eggs and sperm into the water column and they can spread far and wide. While some corals, they sometimes release little larvae and they tend to stay next to their mother really. So they want to stay on the mother reef and they spread less far. And there are also some other things to consider. For instance, uh, these coral larvae, they are really not that strong a swimmer. They are swept away with currents. So oceanographic conditions surrounding reefs are really important for coral connectivity. And also sometimes form barriers for corals to be connected or not. Because if there's a really strong current, maybe they can just not reach another reef. And what we also see is that sometimes reefs are just not surrounded by suitable habitat. So some larvae may not like it there, so they just don't settle there. Depending on these factors, we see there's high connectivity and sometimes really low connectivity. They're also talking about vast areas because, you know, the oceans are huge. Yeah, so that's one of the things I found is that some coral reefs, they are connected for thousands of kilometers. And I really wasn't expecting this. I was like, oh, I will just sample all along the coast of East Africa and then I will find a lot of differences. But some of these corals, they are connected for over 6,000 kilometers. Wow. And I didn't find a difference at all. While some corals, there's huge differences between corals that are only 500 meters apart from each other. That's why I'm saying it really depends on the coral as well. We should consider this if we look into connectivity, what kind of coral are we dealing with? So given that we're not able to travel back in time, unfortunately, that would be quite cool. How can you determine how reefs are historically connected and maybe how this has changed? And so what techniques would you use? So first of all, you have to know that corals, they are sedentary. That means that they are attached to the substrate and they do not move at all. So corals, they only move when they release these larvae. And these larvae, they travel places. And if you're a scientist and you really want to know where these larvae go, you kind of have to chase them down. Well, that's really hard. If you go swim around and look for these larvae, first of all, they are really small. They travel really far, sometimes up to 6,000 kilometers. And they sometimes do so for a very long time as well. So it's very hard to follow them directly. So what we do is we look at the indirect effect of connectivity. Basically, when a larvae arrives in a new reef, it will affect the genetic 
population of this reef. And based on this information, you can then deduce what connectivity is. So basically, to give an example, if reefs are really well connected, you would expect to see that the different corals are really homogenized between these different groups. While if they are not really well connected, you would expect them to be very different. They look different, they may reproduce a bit different, they may uh, live a bit different. So that's the way we deduce connectivity between reefs. And based on that, you can make assumptions about historic connectivity. For instance, if we look at the reefs in the Red Sea, we see that they are really, really different. And we can now see, okay, during the last glacials, for instance, the Red Sea was really not connected to the rest of the Western Indian Ocean. And probably this was because of a historic barrier between these reefs in the Red Sea and the reefs in the Western Indian Ocean. That is really fascinating. I'm also pleased to know that you're not just chasing corals around <laughs> the seven seas, going like, where are you going? Where are you going? Wait for me! <laughs> that would be fun but probably also quite stressful well there's actually some scientists that do this really? uh, it has been done. they chase corals <laughs> yeah someone has to do it but for my corals sometimes they have a very long larval duration or pelagic larval duration it's called so the time they spend in the water column and it can be up to a few hundred days so it's not feasible to follow them around <laughs> no <laughs> a nice long sailing trip yeah. <laughs> so how can we then use this knowledge about how connected reefs are to help us with conservation? Well, we can use this information to prioritize protection. So for instance, where to place marine protected areas. For instance, well-connected areas can be more suitable to protect because they can replenish other reefs and they um, may be more resilient against stressors in the future. And I suppose then we can also prioritize things for the work that James and Jamie have talked about already. Yeah, that's right. Assisted gene flow, selective breeding and captive breeding and where to release things. Absolutely. Excellent. I've got it sussed. I've got whole conservation <laughs> sussed. I haven't. Got change fields, money. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Rosa, where would you see the future of corals? So, coral reefs are degrading really fast, so they can still be saved, I think. But we should act and act fast and start prioritizing which reefs we want to protect first. So this kind of work on connectivity can help with that. And last, before we let you go, <laughs> why corals? What's your favorite thing about corals? Uh, two things, I guess. What I really love is that they have this three-dimensional structure and that all these other critters are living inside of them. So you don't only see the coral, but you see the sponges, the fish, the crabs, everything inside. So that's really cool, I think. And the other thing is what I learned doing my work on coral connectivity is that they spread really far and wide. Like I said, over 6,000 kilometers. That was something I, I wasn't expecting. I think is, is really cool about corals. Conservation is traditionally very species-focused, so how many species of corals are actually out there? We don't really know, to be honest. There's over a thousand species of hard corals. By hard corals, I mean those corals which actually are able to lay down this calcium carbonate deposit the, to build the reefs. Just the tough corals, yeah. tough guy corals. <laughs> hard in terms of calcium carbonate okay. structure. <laughs> um, so we call them hard corals. But yeah, so there's over a thousand species, but we actually don't really know. We know very little about the taxonomy of corals. So, I mean, some of them are very amazing looking. So a few that I know, for example, are things like brain corals or staghorn corals. But how easy is it actually to identify species of coral? 
That's a good question. It's actually really hard. I mean, some species can be quite easy because they might have very distinctive morphological characteristics, but others can be very difficult. So one of the ways that our next speaker has been identifying corals is using genetic techniques. So Chris is a research fellow here at ZSL at the Institute of Zoology, and his research is focused on benthic ecology with a particular focus on corals and seaweeds from North America. And today he's telling us a bit about his work on coral barcoding in aquaria. So Chris, we've been talking about the value of aquaria in in helping with coral conservation efforts. And when you see corals in aquarium, how easy is it to determine which species they are? Not particularly easy for quite a lot of reasons. As you were saying, it's difficult to identify species of corals in the wild. That is confounded a bit when you grow them in aquaria because the conditions that you grow them in can actually make them look very different. And that can be as different from being a plate form of coral to a branching form of coral. Generally speaking, that task of identifying is quite difficult because we don't really understand species boundaries very well. There are particular problems with corals because there are some species groups where we can't really distinguish the species boundaries and so we have might be three species in there or it might be one depending on how you want to look at it. Does it matter that we know or don't know which species of corals we have in Aquaria? Well, I think it does, because if we truly want to get the maximum value out of the collections that we have, then understanding what it is we have is the kind of the first part of that. So there's a lot of research effort in corals and there's a lot of conservation issues with corals. And so maximizing the collections we have is a really important part of that. If they're dying in the wild, then making the most of the collections we have in our aquaria is a really important conservation step. So how can we improve our ability to actually identify these corals then in the aquarium? So what we've been doing here at ZSL is to use techniques of DNA barcoding to help us identify our corals. So we look at the genetic code, uh, we look at particular sections of DNA for our corals, and then we compare that DNA to reference samples. And if we find a match, then that's uh, an identification for that coral. Turns out that it's not quite that easy, but that's the principle. So the technique that you're using, and that Catherine earlier mentioned as well, is DNA barcoding, right? Now, when I think of barcoding or hear barcoding, I just always see myself standing at a self-service checkout in in a supermarket and trying to scan items. And sometimes, you know, my cheese is reduced and sometimes it isn't and sometimes it doesn't recognize what it is at all. Um, Is DNA barcoding similar in how it works and how frustrating it can be? It can be terribly frustrating. Corals are are particularly tricky to work with. They are particularly slimy and those polysaccharides that they ooze out can really mess up the chemistry of your DNA extractions and the post-processing that you want to do with them. And then the corals in the tanks, they can hybridize and then it's like, okay, are we getting the genetic signal from the maternal or paternal contributor here? And uh, the universal barcode that we use doesn't work for corals either. And so we have to find new pieces of DNA to try to amplify and look at. So it's not a simple task and yeah, it often doesn't work out as well as we might like it to. 
So the barcode that you're referring to is essentially like a section of DNA that's commonly used to identify species of a certain type of Yes. Taxon group. Yeah, so, you know, the full genome of our corals might contain 700 million DNA bases, but we try to focus on a little bit that's only 500 long, so it's manageable bite size. But keeping it simple like that then sometimes means that you haven't got sufficient detail to actually do all the things that you want. So it's always a balancing act. Yeah, makes sense. So how far have you been able to get with your ID project so far? Yeah, so this is a a pilot that we're doing at the moment. We've processed a couple of hundred samples to date, taking samples from the zoo here and from a couple of other aquariums to try to get some provisional identifications and then compare that to the identifications we're getting by just looking at the samples to see if we are actually improving the picture. And I think we are so far. You know, about half of the zoo's collection We don't actually know what species they are. And at least half of those now we've got some kind of name to. And as we work a bit harder on this, we'll get better. That's the aim. Excellent. (laughs) I was about to ask you what's the end goal, but I suppose the end goal of the project is to ID most, at least, of the species. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's to have a confident identification on all of our samples and then to share that information with as many people as possible. So my colleague Paul Pierce-Kelly here is working on this database to store this information information and to incorporate our genetic identifications and then share that with lots of different aquariums so the, the more people know what collections we have and we're going to then roll this out to other collections as well then we can share that information and then maximize the value from the living collections that we have. How do you see this contributing to coral conservation? Yeah, well, um, if corals are dying in the wild and we have collections living, then, you know, this is a potential gene pool. This is a potential biobank of conservation value. We can then potentially put them back out in the wild or just learn from these samples as much as possible. Before we have to say goodbye to you, though, Chris, can you tell us your favourite coral fact? Why corals? Why are they so cool? The thing I like to tell people about corals is that um, when people, when you tell people you work on corals, they think that you're diving in tropical paradises. And uh, actually, I mostly work on deep sea corals. And uh, a lot of people don't know that we have coral reefs in British waters. And we have deep water coral reefs. You can't dive to them because they're maybe a thousand meters below the surface. But uh, on the coast of Scotland and even in our British bit of the Bay of Biscay, we have cold water coral reefs. And that often surprises people. Right, Catherine, my brain has officially turned to brain coral, whatever that (laughs) means. Um, But before we go, based on what we heard about today, what do you think the future holds for corals? That's a tricky question. I think that as, you know, James and, and Jamie, Rosa and Chris have all said that The initial outlook for for corals isn't a rosy one. They're extremely threatened, particularly by climate change impacts. But I think as a conservationist, you also have to be an optimist. And there are glimmers of hope. The work that's being done that we've talked about does give some promise for the future of coral reefs. And I think coral reefs won't continue to exist how we know them today. But my hope is, is that they will continue to exist in some form. And if we can then bring down those climate change emissions to, well, the aim at the moment is to keep them below 1.5 degree temperature increase, 
then corals may have a chance in the future to to regenerate and um, recover from the impacts that are happening to them now. What do you see as the next big development then in mitigating climate change impact for corals of the ones that you heard about? Is it a mixture of all of them together? I mean, it seems like they're all going to work very well together in terms of spatial planning of where we're going to put protected areas, but also where we might want to put spawned corals from from Mm. aquaria, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we need to continue to develop all of these tools so that we have this sort of toolbox for, for conservation. So I don't think there's any one solution. I think that the work on coral connectivity, for instance, allows us to know where to best place things like marine protected areas, which help to try and prevent, try and mitigate some of the impacts of climate change in the first place. And then the work that James and Jamie are doing, looking at coral reef restoration, and also how to try and selective breed the tougher corals is potentially going to give us a way to restore some of those reefs that have been affected. And then the work that Chris is doing is in a way a last resort is going to allow us to hopefully have this biobank of material in in aquariums just as we have seed banks for plants as a sort of backup to maybe be able to reintroduce species that go extinct or locally extinct in certain regions so i think all of these tools together are hopefully giving us some real promise for the future of coral reefs you definitely have your work cut out lots more trips to chagos hopefully <laughs> Yes, that is, that's one of the perks of the job. But you're right, we do have our work cut out in general. Um, if our listeners would like to find out more about corals and the climate change challenge that they are facing, feel free to revisit our podcast episode 11. It was rather bluntly named, Can We Still Save Coral Reefs and What If We Don't? So it might not be the most hopeful listening, but if you want to find out more about corals, how they function and so on, give this a go. And if you would like to find out more about Catherine's work here at ZSL for the Batterelli program in marine science, can people check out a website as well? Yes, you can look at the ZSL website where you'll find out a bit more about our work. And there'll also be a new website for the Bertarelli Foundation, their marine science consortium work coming out soon. Coral reefs actually support more species than any other marine habitats. And uh, the only ecosystem which supports more is rainforests. So, Jamie, what's your favourite fun fact about corals? Corals are like jellyfish and they eat and poo through their same orifice. What a cool animal. Amazing.